Good morning, everyone. Make your way in if you can. We're going to cover uh, 28% of the New Testament this morning. <clears throat> Just uh, one little stat to throw at you there. We're going to look this morning at Luke and Acts, and we'll see why we're looking at those together. And then the Gospel of Luke, which is easier to understand once you look at Luke and Acts uh, simultaneously. So let's, uh, let's get our minds really focused here on the Lord and on His Word. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity we have this morning to begin to just in broad strokes think about the Word of God, the very revelation of the mind of God given to humanity. And today, Lord, we ask you to help us to understand um, your grace and your kindness in reaching out to uh, the Gentiles, reaching out to all of us who are not part of the history of Israel, not part of uh, biblical history at, at any level, and yet the gospel reaches out to us, and the books of uh, Luke and Acts help us with that, Lord. I pray that that's a thrill to our heart, and I pray that we would gather in and think on the word of God at as high a level as we can today so that we might be better worshipers. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. So, uh, I haven't done this in a long time, but every week we have our purpose statement for Bible Training Institute up here. And uh, it used to be that we read this out loud a lot. Let's do it again. You ready? Bible Training Institute is to proactively accelerate the spiritual growth of Grace Bible Church for the purpose of knowing God more intimately and becoming more effective servants of God in the world. This is the important part, the purpose of knowing God more intimately. You know Him by what He has said. And so um, that's why we're doing this. This is not just lecture to get knowledge. It is to, um, to know God. That being said, Luke and Acts and Luke... I want to start off looking at the relationship between the two. Why do we list these together, Luke and Acts? Well, I'm going to give you some reasons here. First of all, Luke and Acts, you ought to consider them volume one and volume two of one work. They, they go together. Acts chapter one, verse one says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So right off in Acts chapter 1, Luke says this is volume 2. Luke was written before Acts, about two to four years before. Um, they would both come within the range of about 58 to 63 uh, AD. Both of them written right in that, that little range. And they're both written to the same recipient, the same guy. His name is Theophilus, and we'll talk about him in a moment. <clears throat> and just a little side note, if you want to get an overview of the book of Acts, I preached a whole sermon through Acts 1 through 28 um, in one shot a few years ago, and you can look that up on our website or on the Steadfast in the Faith website as well, and that would uh, give you a good big picture there. Um, they have same purposes for both volumes. Luke 1, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's very important because uh, Luke is dealing with eternal issues. He is dealing with issues of heaven and hell and whether uh, <clears throat> a Gentile can come to faith in Christ. And so, like all of you, you want to know if, you're, if you are betting eternity on something you've been taught, then you need to know that you know that you know. 
And so this is what Luke and Acts is all about, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Luke is the longest gospel uh, by word count. Luke and Acts comprise more of the New Testament than any other human author by word count. 28% of the New Testament is Luke and Acts. Um, the Apostle Paul gives us 25%. So if, uh, if Luke and Paul were in the race, uh, Paul is that guy who barely comes in second looking at the guy who's coming in first. 28%. And interestingly, Luke is the only Gentile writer in any part of Scripture. Colossians 4, 10, and 11 says that uh, Luke is a Gentile. And so uh, if you're a Gentile hoping that the truth that you've been taught is real and that this Jewish Messiah would reach out to Gentiles, wouldn't it be a comfort to you to know that it's a Gentile that's giving you the truth of the gospel? So there's a great bridge there. Luke and Acts contains the most complete New Testament history. It covers 66 years of New Testament history from about 6 B.C., maybe 4 B.C. to uh, A.D. 60 or so. So we're talking about um, 65, 66 years of New Testament history. Luke is the only gospel which gives the account of the ascension. Acts does as well. And so that was important for Luke's theology was to give the account of the ascension of Christ and he's the only New Testament author we're aware of that wrote a follow-up to his gospel. Luke wrote his gospel and then wrote volume two of the gospel that we have as the great history of the church in the book of Acts. There's a foundation for understanding the epistles, the letters of the New Testament, and that is Luke and Acts, Acts in particular. That's, that, when you read the epistles, you either always try to plug them into where they happen in the book of Acts. Um, for example, uh, the, the books of First and Second Thessalonians, you can plug those into Acts chapter 16 and 17 in that area. Just a few um, parts of that foundation. Acts gives us the foundation for knowing the chronology and the situations of the New Testament letters. The New Testament letters are set into a historical context and Acts helps us to do that. Luke and Acts gives us a theological framework for understanding the new testament it's the foundation theologically for really all of the new testament it's vital for understanding paul's letters but also um, the other epistles so acts is is great it's a road map to uh, to understanding where the epistles kind of fit into early church history and so what we could say now is that a contemporary bible scholar today and, and rightly so, would say you cannot understand the New Testament fully without Luke and Acts. Uh, yes, the Bible is a collection of books. The New Testament is a collection of books. But they're there on purpose. And they're, they're God's arrangement, exactly what we need to understand a self-interpreting Bible. Now, um, just a little side note. The most serious study of Luke and Acts, particularly the book of Acts, has only happened in about the last 70 to 75 years. Um, in the last 70 to 75 years, scholarly and, and really high-level studies of Luke um, because of Acts, but Luke and Acts together, just skyrocketed all over academia in the very best sense. Why, why do you think that is? It's because of the charismatic movement and the errors associated with the book of Acts. Um, scholars started saying, this cannot be right. Let's see what Scripture really says. And so studies of Acts went through the roof um, and it really created an impetus to study it in depth. And now, uh, in my mind, the best commentaries on the book of Acts have been written in the last 30 years. So 
Uh, God even uses error to propel us forward. Uh, this is very similar to COVID. What did COVID do in the church? It propelled forward the study of ecclesiology of the church. So it's very, very foundational. The author is Luke. He was the ministry companion of the Apostle Paul. And when you're reading Acts, you might pay attention to the different pronouns that Luke uses. Sometimes he says we, and sometimes they, he says they, when talking about the ministry group that traveled with Paul. Why is that? Well, for example, he stayed behind in Philippi and then rejoined Paul later in Macedonia. So it actually helps you track where Luke was and where Paul was by paying attention to the pronouns. This is really just such an important issue here, the reader, Theophilus. And I'm going to camp on this just for a few minutes because this is the key to understanding both books. And if you find the one key to understanding 28% of the Old Testament or the New Testament, that is worth camping on. Theophilus is a, <clears throat> it's a, it's a Greek word, kind of could be uh, based in Latin as well, that means lover of God. It's written in Greek, but it's a, it's a Latin root. Lover of God. Now, some would say, well, that's just a literary device. Just any lover of God. And so, so Luke uses it as a nickname. Anybody who loves God, this is for you. That, that argument begins to have a lot of holes in it very quickly. The first one is that Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus in, in the book of Luke. This is some kind of governmental function. And history has taught us that most excellent is the precise title for a Roman provincial governor. It's as precise as in our country as Mr. Uh, Mr. President. It's that precise. Or governor so-and-so. Or a judge being called your honor. And so it's a very precise. It's not just that Luke thought Theophilus was a great guy. You're most excellent. No, that's a title. And so what that means is, and the title was only applied when they are in office. And so when Luke wrote to Theophilus, Theophilus was a Roman provincial governor, which makes him one of the maybe 20, 30 most powerful men on the planet at that time. So when Luke is written, it's written to Theophilus, who is a Roman provincial governor. It's used three times in Acts. Each time it refers to a governor. Twice for Felix, one time for Festus in chapter 26. So most excellent is a title for someone with authority from Rome itself, most likely a, a governor. And so what Luke is doing is he is giving the proper um, respect and authority to that office that it was due according to Roman law. He was recognizing that role. So when Luke refers to Theophilus as most excellent, he's saying that Theophilus has a higher status than he does. That Theophilus is, is in a very high, influential, powerful position. Now, a little historical note here. In Luke... Theophilus is referred to as most excellent Theophilus, but not in Acts. What's the difference? Well, the difference between Luke and Acts is just simply a few years of time. When Theophilus was written to in Luke, he was in office. When Theophilus was written to in Acts, he was no longer in office because he only called him most excellent while he was in office. Some think that Theophilus was Luke's uh, patron 
a literary patron that he paid Luke to do this research. That's a, that's a possibility. He would have been a man of great means. Um, to have any office in Rome, you generally had to pay dearly for it. Um, sort of like America now, there's no such thing as a poor politician. Um, you know, ironically, all the politicians who are saying we're for the poor are the ones building $25 million mansions themselves. And so he was a, he was a man of great means, and it's very possible that he funded the uh, writing of Luke and Acts. I mean, if I'm a wealthy man and I'm trying to determine if what I've believed about eternity is true and I, I sense that somebody can provide those answers, of course I'm going to pay for that. How about you devote your life to making sure I go to heaven? Absolutely, that's worth any price. And so Luke would likely also pay for copies to be made and distribute copies. So the whole purpose of Luke and Acts is that Theophilus still has issues that need to be resolved. And the main issue that needs to be resolved is just how Jewish do you have to be to be saved? Because think about this. Theophilus is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. Not only is he not a Jew and a Gentile, he is also a Roman. What nation crucified Christ? The Romans. Not only is he a Gentile, not only is he a Roman, he's a Roman governor. Um, see also Pontius Pilate. So not only is he a Gentile, not only is he a Roman, he's a Roman governor, exactly the same type of person working for the same Caesar that crucified Christ. Not only that, he would be perceived by the Jews as the enemy of the people of God. And so Theophilus, at some point, probably through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, came to faith in Christ and is concerned I'm a Gentile, I'm a Roman, I'm a Roman governor. Am I worthy of salvation? Can I still be saved? And so when you go through um, the book of Luke and Acts, if you will keep this question in mind, how Jewish do you have to be to be saved? And the answer is not at all. And salvation is is available for everyone. If you'll keep that question in mind about a a, a Roman provincial governor uh, who is who is uh, twiddling his thumbs and who is very, very nervous about maybe he's outside the realm of people who can be saved. So if you will put those lenses on, you literally now know how to interpret 28% of the New Testament if you'll just simply put those glasses on for both Luke and Acts. And you'll see it come through. And you'll see this in historical and theological themes. Let's do those next. This is again Luke and Acts together. You have the sovereign plan and the purpose of God. You have a motif 18 times in Luke and 22 times in Acts. The it is necessary uh, motif, Greek day. And he said to them, Luke 2, 49, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? It, it is necessary. Sometimes translated, did you not know and so forth. There is the determination of God. And I have some, a couple of references listed up there, at least one. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's one of the greatest statements on the sovereignty of God over the death of Christ in all of the Bible. You have the appointment of God. Acts 22.14, and he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. You have the fulfillment of scripture. 
Luke and Acts is basically a giant chain of showing God's decree and it taking place just as God decreed. So what has happened? The message of God that began to be proclaimed by Jesus is the message that's then given to the apostles, given to Paul. It's gone to the ends of the earth and to the Gentiles and ultimately to Theophilus and all the people just like him. And so you have the sovereign plan and purpose of God. Uh, you, you can easily prove the, so- the doctrine of the sovereignty of God from Luke and Acts. It's everywhere. You have the theme of the Savior, the theme of salvation, I'm just going to give you a couple of references here. The theme of the Savior, Luke 1.47. You also could look at Luke 2.11. I don't have these on the slide, and I apologize for that. You have the theme of salvation under Savior, Luke 1.69. Really all over the end of Luke chapter 1, Jesus the Savior, Christ the Lord the Savior, and so forth. You have Acts 4.12. Acts 7.25, those are good uh, examples of the soteria word, the salvation word. So what is, he, what is he saving us from? He's saving us from sin. Salvation is to, means to save, to free from harm, to release somebody. And you have in both Luke and Acts the, the important Greek word sozo. Uh, you might spell it S-O-Z-O if you want to. But sozo is the, is the root word for savior, or for salvation rather. Um, it is the root word for uh, any time when you see spiritual salvation happening, sozo is around there, and it's in there. And generally speaking, sozo is always going to refer to spiritual salvation, which is very important because when Luke uh, records some of the miracles of Jesus, and Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Sozo, your faith has saved you. And so that's very important. Uh, the charismatic movement would say, well, you, you had faith to be healed. That's not what Jesus is saying. You had faith to be saved. Jesus healed lots of people without faith. He never saved anybody spiritually who didn't have faith. But he healed lots of people without faith. He healed people who didn't even know they needed to be healed. You have the theme of the power of God. And I'll just note this briefly. There's three different Greek words used a total of 45 times in Luke and 37 times in Acts. 45 times in Luke, 37 times in Acts. The power of God, big time. You have Jesus as the Lord, kurios, which is a general term for Lord, but in the case of Jesus, it would be uh, equivalent to the Old Testament use of Yahweh, the Lord, or Adonai, the Master. How many times in Luke and Acts? 210 times. What was Luke's message? Jesus is the Lord. Over and over again. You have the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. All the Gospels can say they have the death and resurrection of Jesus. Only Luke and Acts um, uh, emphasize the ascension of Christ and gives us the the theology behind that. By the way, you have the, the ascension of Christ and then later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul and the writer of Hebrews explains the significance of the ascension. Sometimes we forget about it. Like it's just sort of like the, uh, that last little scene on a show right before it ends. That's the pinnacle of salvation because what was the point of the ascension? Theologically, the point of the ascension is so that Jesus would go to the right hand of the Father where even now he's doing what? He's interceding for us. So the ascension is huge. And I believe I've preached an entire message on the, the theology of the ascension of Christ. And then you have the theme of the Holy Spirit. 
You, you might expect that in the book of Acts, um, <clears throat> but in Luke, the theme of the Holy Spirit is prominent 16 times. And so you have this, this setup. Uh, the Spirit of God is, is increasing in our, our understanding, rather, the Spirit of God is increasing in the Gospels, particularly in Luke. And then in Acts, of course, the, our knowledge of the Holy Spirit just explodes because now the Spirit comes to indwell a people for the first time in all of history. Then you might have, you might have expected this. We're still have more themes. This is Luke and Acts. The Gentiles and Gentile responses. Why is this important? Every time... Uh, Luke and Acts gets to a Gentile. Theophilus is glued to the page. He's going, this is me. And so there are examples of the Gentiles and how they respond. Similarly, you have the outcasts of society, the poor, the tax collectors, the women, the Gentiles. That is the theological order for a Jew. Well, I don't want to be poor, but that's better than being a tax collector. But being a tax collector is better than being a woman. I didn't make that up. That's Jewish theology. But worst of all would be to be a Gentile. And so when Theophilus reads about the poor, the tax collectors, the women, the Gentiles, the Gentiles as the ultimate outsiders, the, the point is not, by the way, well, we should have social awareness and social justice the way Jesus did. He cared for the poor. He cared. That is not the point. Jesus feeding the poor was not his ministry. What did he say about the poor? You'll always have them with you. Until Christ returns, we always will. The point is, is that Jesus is portrayed as having a concern for those that Judaism says, we do not have a concern for you. Official Judaism said, we don't care about the poor, we don't care about the tax collectors, we don't care about the women, and we don't care about the Gentiles. And so the gospel goes beyond the boundaries of human Judaism and goes to the very depths of humanity. And so Theophilus can say, well, if Christ saves the poor, the tax collectors, the women, and the Gentiles, and from a Jewish perspective, those are the worst of the worst, then certainly he can save a Roman provincial governor. And the gospel holds true for him. Then you have the theme of the temple. The gospel of Luke begins in a temple and the, apostle, the, the book of Acts ends with Paul making a trip back to Jerusalem, going to the temple, and really having the same response that Jesus had before. So Luke and Acts together is bookended. They're bookended by the temple. You have the rejection of Jesus by Israel. Did I put some references up there? Yes, that's good. The rejection of Jesus by Israel. That's a, that's a big theme. Why would that be uh, encouraging to Theophilus? Well, these are his people, and... Boy, they don't even like him. So it makes sense that he has turned to the Gentiles. It makes sense that he would save Gentiles because his own people aren't worshiping him. I mean, his own people crucified him. Yes, Rome provided the soldiers to do so, but it was the urging of the Jewish leaders that told Pontius Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Then you have the response to the gospel. The response to the gospel is, uh, we have some words in there, to repent, to come to repentance, to turn. We have the word conversion, to believe, faith. So to repent, repentance, to turn, conversion, to believe, faith. What does this do for Theophilus? 
It's testing his faith. Have I repented? Have I turned from my sin? Have I truly converted? Do I have faith? Do I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Savior of my sin, the only hope for humanity? And so Theophilus can read through this and say, yes, I have repented. Yes, I have believed. Yes, I have been converted. You have the themes of prayer prominent in both. You have verbs to pray. You have the noun prayer. You have the verb to entreat. You have the noun entreaty. Lots of different words for prayer, particularly in the book of Acts. You have the theme of joy. Luke and Acts is not just Theophilus reading through going with sort of a dark, oh, well, it's a good thing I'm saved. There's joy here. You have words like, like to rejoice and rejoice greatly, to be cheerful, to be glad, to be joyful, to have gladness. Lots of words of joy. Then you have the word of God 108 times. Why is that important to Theophilus? Because this is not just Luke's word for it. This is the scriptures. This is the word of God showing Theophilus through the pen of Luke that what he has believed is true. So lots of themes there. We went most of the way through the alphabet um, as far as if we were going to letter these. What's the purpose of Luke and Acts? Gentile Christians from the Pauline mission trips could know with certainty that the word taught to them was absolutely true. Gentile Christians from the Pauline mission trips could know with certainty that the word taught to them was absolutely true. I'll just give you an illustration. How many of you, I'm not, I'm not judging you one way or another, how many of you got to come to Stuart Scott's counseling seminar that we did a week ago or so? <clears throat> you all heard truth you already know. Wasn't it encouraging to have that confirmed very deeply, to have the nails of that truth driven into your heart once again? That's what Luke and Acts is about. This is not to convert Christians, so to speak, or to convert the unconverted. It's, to, uh, to, it's written to Christians to let them know you can have absolute certainty in Christ. You have absolute certainty that the faith that we hold to is true. Now, can you get saved reading Luke and Acts? Absolutely. Tens of thousands, maybe millions have. But it was originally written to give Christians who are Gentiles, who are outside this, the, the chosen people of God of Israel, um, a, a real sense of confidence that they too can be saved. Luke begins with the purpose of his writing. Luke 1, 3, and 4 tells us that that's his purpose. And Luke makes it clear that the current available accounts didn't answer all of Theophilus's questions. Not just other Gospels, because only Matthew was written before Luke. But the, there were other little pieces of accounts that people had, had been written, and it didn't answer all the questions. Why were other accounts not adequate to answer Theophilus's questions? Because none of them answer the question, can a Gentile, as a Gentile, be part of the Messianic community in this age? Can I be part of Messiah's community? The major question that Luke and Acts and frankly the Pauline epistles addresses also, and this is the question I have up there on the, on the slide, is how Jewish does a Gentile have to be to be truly a Christian? Can God save Gentiles as Gentiles? And this comes to a head in Acts chapter 15 where there's a big debate um, among, some, ironically, Pharisees who got saved who are still causing problems, even the saved Pharisees, 
Um, and they're wanting Gentiles to become Jewish before they, get, before they say they're Christians. And what was the determination of the apostles? No, salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, regardless of your status as a Jew. Luke's knowledge of the Old Testament makes it very clear that he was a God-fearer. He was a worshiper of God before becoming a believer as well. That was probably Theophilus as well. God-fearer is a, is a class of Gentile that we see in the book of Acts. Somebody who, is, uh, who has believed that Yahweh is the one true living God, has studied the Old Testament scriptures, has even come to some form of faith without having yet known Christ. And now, knowing Christ, they come to full salvation. That's another topic for another day. But that would have been Luke. That would have been Theophilus as well. Theophilus and others like him, Gentiles are coming to Christ even though they're not a part of the Jewish community. They're not circumcised. They're not part of that history. And so Luke writes the word taught to them by Paul and his associates that what they heard was absolutely true. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved. Acts 15, again, is, uh, centers on that. And by the way, from a literary standpoint, Acts 15 is the center of the, of the book of Acts. So Luke and Acts is about the Gentiles, the relationship between Christ and Gentiles and Jews and Gentiles. Um, this, by the way, this pokes a lot of holes in the whole idea of the church being the new Israel because Luke and Acts very clearly points out that Israel is the chosen ethnic people of God. The church is the chosen spiritual people of God. And it's like the MasterCard symbol, they overlap. You say, well, what if I'm a Jew saved by faith in Christ? Then you get both blessings. You're part of the church and you're part of Israel. What if I'm 5% Jewish? I, I don't know, but God's very gracious and kind. Uh, maybe you get a free flight to Jerusalem once a year or something. I don't know how that'll work. But Luke and Acts shoots down the idea that the church is the new Israel because it would be a lot shorter if that was the case. Uh, Luke would simply be telling Theophilus, are you kidding? You're in the right spot at the right time because Israel's done. Instead, he says, no, Israel is God's chosen people, but as a Gentile, you too can be part of the Messianic community. Now, I don't want to scare you, so don't try to copy this down. I just want to show you something. There we go. And you can get, the, get these online. Don't try to copy this down, but this is the literary structure. I just want to show you, li literary structure demonstrates the, the Holy Spirit-inspired nature of Scripture. I just want to read through this. Both Luke and Acts go through the same storyline. You have a preface in both of them. You have the, the preparation by the Spirit. You have the ministry opened by a sermon that stresses fulfillment and the rejection of Christ by those who would reject Him. You have ministry emphasizing the theme of fulfillments and conflict. You have a lame man who is healed. You have conflicts with religious leaders, centurions requesting a visit, a widow and a resurrection, criticism by Pharisees, messengers sent out, it continues, a last journey to Jerusalem, events in Jerusalem and consequences, there's a good reception by believers, there's a temple entrance, there is Sadducees and the resurrection, there's taking and blessing bread, there's a seizure by a mob, there's a slapping at a high priest's command, there are four trials and three proclamations of innocence, 
And the conclusion is, is that the ministry ends on the positive note of the fulfillment of Scripture. Are Luke and Acts volumes 1 and 2? Absolutely. Are they inspired? Absolutely. Did Luke have in mind this literary structure? I, I would imagine probably not. I would imagine that uh, although he was very bright, I would imagine this is the Holy Spirit's literary structure. In either case, it doesn't matter. This cannot be done by a human being because maybe he could arrange to write things in this order, but God arranged that these things happened in this order. So think about that. So these books are absolutely inspired and they're glorious and they're meant to go together I would give you just a little challenge to take a Saturday afternoon or something and make a big pot of coffee or, a, or a, a, a lot of tea and some snacks and sit down and it would take you probably two and a half to three hours and just read Luke and Acts all as one volume. It will be thrilling to you. And go fast, you can go through it quickly, but it'll be thrilling to you. You'll get to the end of the book of Acts and you will be in tears, I guarantee you. Because you'll see this, it's, it's kind of like reading War and Peace all at, one, all at once. But if you'll do that, uh, it'll be such a blessing to you. It won't be separated out. It'll be one big story. And you, as a Gentile, will get to the end of the book of Acts and say, I have believed in Christ and I have confidence in him. That's the purpose. So I, I would encourage you to do that. It'll be a, a terrific afternoon. And what else are you going to do with your time? You're going to mow the lawn? Who cares about that? Just read Luke and Acts. Let the lawn grow. So there's Luke and Acts. Now we can go a little faster and look at the Gospel of Luke. Because if you understand Luke and Acts, then Luke is easier. The author is Luke. The reader is Theophilus. It is written, and I think I skipped a slide. Let me see here. Or that slide is not there. Um, the date, 58 to 60. It's, it's early. Historical and theological themes. These are unique to Luke compared to other Gospels. You have the classical Greek language. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is the most polished of all the New Testament writing. And you would expect that. Luke was a highly educated man. Um, Peter was not. Paul was highly educated, but he wrote more to the masses. So Luke is, just has a little more polished Greek to it. It represents the work of a, of a highly educated man writing to a highly educated man. Uh, Theophilus was no slouch. He would have been through the best of Roman schools and Roman educational systems. The Greek of Luke and Acts um, most closely resembles only one other book in the New Testament, and that's the book of Hebrews. Uh, we wouldn't say that Hebrews was written by, by Luke. Luke is a Gentile. Hebrews is so Jewish that I think no Gentile could have written it. You have the parables of Jesus unique to Luke. There are 32 major parables of Jesus in the Gospels, not counting smaller word pictures that he uses. 13 of the parables are unique to Luke. And some of them are the most famous. The, the parable of the, uh, the prodigal son, really the, really the parable of the faithful father is what it really is. Um, you have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Those are both unique to Luke. And the parable of the Good Samaritan, by the way, the point of that is not that you should be kind to your neighbor. The point of that is that God saves the people who are the least religious. That's the point of the parable. You have the theme of angels. Luke speaks of angels more than any other gospel writer. And you know this because we go to the book of Luke every Christmas, right? And there's all the angel songs. I preached a whole series on the angel songs in the gospel of Luke a couple of Christmases ago. You have the redemptive mission of Christ is, is very 
poignantly pointed out in Luke. You have secular history, more so than any of the other Gospels. Luke was very precise. He gave names. He gave uh, the names of governors, of, of Quirinius and, and Caesar and so forth. And so there's a, a great pre- precision in history. You have a unique travel description section. Chapter 9, verse 51 through chapter 19, verse 27. 40% of the gospel deals with the last six months of Jesus' ministry. And what is he doing? He is slowly making his way toward Jerusalem. 40% of the gospel. You have an emphasis on Jesus' words a lot more than his actions. This is different than the gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark is the opposite, much more about Jesus' actions. In Mark, 41 times, you get the word immediately, immediately, immediately. In, in Luke, you get much more, and Jesus said. So you have that wonderful balance. You have Jesus' ministry to women and children. You have Jesus saying very clearly, to enter to the, into the kingdom of God, you must become like a little child. Now, what does that mean? I have heard so many sermons on this. You, you must be innocent like a child. Are children innocent? Not theologically, they're not. No, what, what does a child have to offer the world? Nothing. A child is helpless. A child is hopeless without, without help. You come to the kingdom as somebody with nothing in your hands except your own sin. And so what is the message to Theophilus? Did you come as a little child? Or did you come to God saying, I'm a Roman governor? And if Theophilus can honestly say, no, that's actually a liability. I come with my hands open with nothing in them but my sin. Then the, then the Gospel of Luke tells Theophilus, I'm in that group of children. And then you have the inclusion of Gentiles in God's plan, obviously is a major theme we've already talked about. I want to just point out two major passages in Luke. Luke two twenty nine through 32. This is Mary and Joseph coming to Jerusalem. Forty days for purification. They bring Jesus to Jerusalem as the firstborn male. He is special to the Lord. He is unique to the Lord. Mary and Joseph are to offer a sacrifice to to give payment for the firstborn because according to the law of Moses, the firstborn of every family belongs to God. And so they give payment. You had a variety of options to give payment. If you were very poor, you could, you could bring birds as a sacrifice. I mean, literally, you could catch your payment. And that's what they did. It shows that they were poor. You have Simeon in this section. He is righteous and he's devout. Luke 2, 27, the Spirit leads Simeon to the, to the temple. Verse 32, Jesus is called... A light of revelation to the Gentiles. And by the way, Simeon lists the light of revelation to the Gentiles and, oh, by the way, to Israel also. What's Theophilus going? Yay, all right. I I think I'm in if I've had faith in Christ. This is God speaking through Simeon concerning Christ and the Lord's salvation at the temple at Jerusalem. You cannot get more Jewish than that. He is in the center of Jewishness. And yet Simeon says, first, a light of salvation to the Gentiles and to the glory of Israel. And then you have Luke 13, 22 through 30. This is a parable of a banquet. And in this parable of the banquet, 
Luke shows Gentiles being included in the kingdom of God as Gentiles. They're invited to the banquet. There's no indication at all that Gentiles had to become Jews to become saved. They're saved as Gentiles. And so those are just two important passages in Luke that would have been encouraging to Theophilus and to all Gentile believers. Um, and again, we note that Luke included Gentiles, but he didn't exclude Israel. The Apostle Paul was the same way. He said very clearly that he went first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Jesus said the same thing about himself. Luke is not proof that Jews and Gentiles are somehow mixed up as just one people under God. Um, the rejection of the Jews for a time, absolutely. God has rejected the Jews for now. The exclusion of the Jews for all time, not at all. The whole theme of the Old Testament is the ultimate restoration of Israel. So again, Luke and Acts is encouraging to the Gentile, but also tells us that God has a plan yet to be fulfilled for Israel. So what was the purpose of Luke under the heading of the purpose of Acts? Uh-oh, I think our little thing died there. Sorry, James, if you could propel that forward. Here's the purpose of Luke. Jesus was and is the Lord and Savior in accordance with the plan of God. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2.11. We, we love Luke at Christmas time. But really, Luke 2.11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is, that is the theme of the whole book. That's the purpose of the book, to show us Christ. Now, I want to do one interpretive issue because it's a big one even in our day. Let me read this whole text to you. Luke 17.20 through 24. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. In other words, oh, if we could have one day with Jesus back on earth, we would love that. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. The key here is, what does it mean the kingdom of God is in the midst of you? The New American Standard, I think, misses the boat on this. Um, what I just read to you, rather, was the, was the uh, English Standard Version. The New American Standard, I think... It can be a little bit misleading. The kingdom of God is within you. So what does that mean? There's two basic options here. The first option is that the kingdom of God is inside you. That the kingdom is purely spiritual. And this has been a, a huge contributor to amillennial theology. Amillennial theology says that this is clear that the kingdom is not a physical reality, but the kingdom is a spiritual reality. It's internal, it's not external. It's something internally experienced. Now, there's a small problem with this. Right in that text I just read to you, Jesus said, the day will come when you long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You long to see me back on the earth, physically. And they'll say, look here, look there. Jesus said that his coming will be like lightning. It will be obvious. 
So he's already giving hope of a physical reality to the kingdom. This is Jesus' answer to the Pharisees. The Pharisees aren't going to see it. Their eyes have not been opened. Verse 24 is really the climactic and the visual Son of Man returning, the lightning lighting up the sky. That'll be what the Son of Man returning is like. It'll be evident to all. The disciples are going to long for the day of the Son of Man. Uh, He's going to Jerusalem to die when they think they're going to get their places in the kingdom. You remember how often the disciples argued about who's going to be first? It's because they logically thought that Jesus, they believed he was the king, but they logically thought he was going to take the kingdom at that point and then say, uh, James and John, be here at my right and left hand, and Peter, you, you know, go feed the horses, whatever they hoped would happen to Peter. But they were all arguing over what would happen now. And so when he says, the day, you'll long for the days when the Son of Man walked on the earth because it's going to be a shock to them that he dies. It's going to be even more shocking that he's resurrected. That'll give them a little bit of hope, but then it's going to shock them and he's going to be ascended into heaven. He's going to ascend into heaven. Angels are going to be there. And what's the picture you get from Acts chapter one of the, the apostles going like this? What are they thinking? They're, they're thinking, oh no, what just happened? Because what was the question they just asked right before the ascension? At what time will you bring the kingdom? And then he goes, whoop. And they go, no more kingdom. So the kingdom of God is clearly physical, but it seems, especially from the New American Standard and other translations, the kingdom of God is within you. That has been used as, a, as an excuse or a theological basis to say that the kingdom is not a physical thing. The kingdom is purely spiritual. And that has been a huge basis for not only covenant theology, but for amillennialism. And those two overlap. They're not exactly the same, but they do overlap. But I'll tell you this. If Jesus is saying that the kingdom is within your heart, this is the only place that whole concept is found in all of the New Testament. It's the only place. The New Testament says, listen carefully. The New Testament says the kingdom is something I get into, not that gets into me. The kingdom is something I go to that I become a part of, not something that just gets in me. So what does it mean that he said the kingdom of God is in the midst of you? Inside you, we would say no. We would say the kingdom of God is in your midst. And I think the ESV gets it uh, really accurate on this. Why would he say to the Pharisees, The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Well, first of all, he can't be telling the Pharisees the kingdom of God is within you because they're unsaved. The kingdom, even if you believe that the kingdom of God is within you, he's not saying that to them. He's saying the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You ready for this? It simply means the kingdom of God is in the midst of you because the king is standing right around you. Jesus is there. The king is here. You can reach out and touch the king. Better yet, you could kneel down and you could worship the king and you could ask for forgiveness and become part of the kingdom. So when he says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, it is no more complex than this. Picture a bunch of Pharisees surrounding Jesus and he said the kingdom of God is right in the middle of you right now because the king is here. Now, did the kingdom come at that point? No. Jesus ascended into heaven. The kingdom has not come. 
Has the kingdom come to earth now? Is the kingdom here invisibly, as our amillennial brothers would say? Are we in the midst of the kingdom right now? No. Jesus himself proved we're not in the midst of the kingdom. Pray this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. What's the next phrase? Your kingdom come. It's not, thank you that your kingdom has come. You're praying for the kingdom to come. Now, do we have a sense of the kingdom on earth? Absolutely. We have a whole bunch of kingdom citizens here right now. We're foreigners. We're aliens in a land that's not ours, but it will be. It will be ours. We'll go away for a while, and then we'll come back with Jesus as, as, as the conquering hero to take back what's rightfully his. But we're, we're in a foreign land. We don't belong here right now. So, is the kingdom of God within you? Only in the sense that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the King, is within you. But the kingdom is a physical reality that it's coming. You cannot get away from this in all the Old Testament. It's a physical reality with vineyards and, and nations and uh, physical things and a new Jerusalem and all kinds of joys that just read the book of Isaiah and just underline everything that looks like a coming physical kingdom and you'll, you'll run out of ink and have to get another pen. There's so much there. So there it is. That's the main interpretive issue that, that I wanted to highlight. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you because Christ was right there. So we have... Two minutes for questions on Luke and Acts. That was 28% of the New Testament, so I guess we should take a few questions. Any questions from this morning? Any questions on anything whatsoever? This is grill the pastor time if you want. Yep. Just keep rambling until it comes out right. That is a great question. The, ba- the basic question is how can God choose the people of Israel and choose the church? The Isra- Israel is the chosen nation, the ethnic people of God. The church right now in this age are the chosen people of God. What's the difference? Um, let me tell you what it's not, first of all. Uh, there's, a, there's a thought in theology that somehow it's helpful to reduce things to simplicity. And that's one of the downsides to traditional confessions like the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, trying to reduce theology to simple statements. And one of the arguments against um, Jews as the ethnic people of God chosen for all time and Gentiles as being grafted in um, is the idea that, well, does God have two, two chosen peoples? Well, in a sense, yes. But that's somewhat of a straw man argument. A straw man argument is setting up an argument that nobody believes. There, there are, what, what do you call a Gentile who thinks that God is done with Jews? Traditionally, in history, we call them anti-Semitic, right? Um, and I could show you from some really good sources that there is a significant amount of anti-Semitism um, based in Reformation theology. We have to be really careful about that. Uh, Reading Augustine, you would think sometimes some of the things he he wrote that he was a Nazi because he was so against Israel. 
because of their belief that the church was the new Israel or the church had replaced Israel or that 70 AD when Jerusalem was uh, destroyed, God was totally done with Israel. So what do you do with this? Well, Romans 9, 10, and 11 explains this, that, that, that Israel is God's chosen people. Gentiles have been grafted in, but you notice that they're still Gentiles. They're grafted in into the people of God. Um, Ephesians 2 and 3 talks about our unity. We are one people of God in the sense that we're all saved by the cross of Christ. Romans 9 says that true Israel are only Israelites who are saved by faith. So now, how do you put that together? It's really important to understand that one of the major themes in Scripture and all the way to the end, literally to Revelation 22, is the fact that God's original intent for earth, for the planet earth, was for peoples to be divided into nations. That was always his intent. Where do we get that? The Garden of Eden. Eden is not the name of the garden. Eden is the name of the country that the garden was in. There was also another country named Genesis 1 and 2, Havilah. Um, there was another country named, this is somewhat uh, anachronistic, but the country of Assyria. That's a later name, but it was still a nation. Fast forward all the way to Revelation 22. Revelation 21, rather. You have the nations in the final state bringing their glory, bringing their wares, um, all the things. You know, for example, if, if a nation is famous for growing this incredible spice, they're bringing their spices. The nation is famous for gold, they're bringing gold. But the nations are bringing their offerings to the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Jerusalem. So nations clearly exist. Does New Jerusalem exist? It will. It does. Nobody disputes that. What are the names of the gates in New Jerusalem according to Revelation 21? Well, they have names like Reuben and Joseph and Simeon and Gad and Naphtali. Pretty Jewish names. If there are nations on earth, and there's a new Jerusalem, what country would you put New Jerusalem in? How about Israel? Israel is the capital nation of the world. No more saved than us, but elevated and exalted. And look, if you own 100,000 acres of land, are you going to be jealous of the guy who owns 200,000? At that point, it's, it's a moot point. Your reward in heaven will be so great but, if, but what's our attitude toward the Jews? It is a straw man argument to set up a competitive attitude. It's not competitive. If you read the book of Isaiah, there are some glorious passages in Isaiah that say that Gentile kings and queens after the great tribulation and when Christ is returned will be the ones to gather up literally Jewish children and bring them home to Israel. That a Jew will be walking and 10 people will come up and say, um, we love the fact that you are Jewish. And so how's that going to work out? It's going to be great. Does anybody know a Messianic Jew? I, I know a couple. It's glorious knowing them. And I've never known a true believer in Christ who says, I don't want anything to do with, with Jewish believers or with the nation of Israel. Uh, read Isaiah for, or, uh, Ezekiel 40 through 48, this glorious new temple that is not the... Uh, the final temple in the New Jerusalem, this is a temple in the millennium, and it is very, very Jewish. And you have a picture of Gentiles coming to it. So, Andy, to answer your question, are there two peoples of God? In a sense, Israel had a purpose. 
Uh, Exodus 19.6 says that the purpose of Israel is to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They introduce the rest of the world to God. And so it is through Israel we know God. It's through Israel we got Christ. Um, you, you can't have Israel being excluded because a Jew is the king of kings and lord of lords. That would be silly. He couldn't hold on to his own nation. So how's that going to work? I, I think I've told you about everything I know about it, but it's going to be glorious. Um, and it makes me nervous when churches or theological systems or whole nations are anti-Israel. I don't want to be in that camp at all because God is very, very pro-Israel. Um, he's not pro-apostate Israel, but he's pro-Israel, the real Israel, Romans 9, 6. So that, that's the best I can do. It's a glorious relationship. A great place to read would be um, Ephesians 2 and 3. It tells more about that. Great question. That was like an ordination exam there. I, we have to be done. We're a little bit short on time. So thank you, Andy. That was a great question. Thank you, Lord, for this time we've had together. And we are reminded today that you formed the nation of Israel through whom you would bring Messiah, our Savior, our dear Jesus, our dear Lord. And we're so thankful for him and we're thankful that your grace extended beyond the borders of Israel, that your grace has extended to all the way to wicked, heinous, judgment-worthy places like California. Lord, I, I imagine that during the Great Tribulation, there are quite a few judgments reserved for our particular geography. And yet here we are, the church, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away from the physical location of where all the gospel events took place. And here we are on the other side of the world, worshiping Christ, a Jewish king. We thank you, Lord, for saving us as Gentiles, as the lowest of the low, we praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.